So we are in the second week of a series on our core values at Orlando Grace Church. So this is going to feel a little different than our normal process of just walking through different books of the Bible. But we, we think it's very important that you not only know where it is that we're going as a church, but that you also know why, I would say even more importantly, why we're going the direction that we're going. So last week we talked about our core value of blessing our city. And this week we talk about our core value of equipping our people. And I wanna do this by looking through the lens of what we read there, uh, Paul writing to the Ephesian church. And if you were here last week, you know a lot about the Ephesian church. We looked at the rise of the Ephesian church in Acts 19. We looked at what may well have been the fall of the Ephesian church in Revelation. And now we're looking at Paul's letter to that church somewhere in between uh, the two passages that we looked at last week. So Paul, right before this passage that I read, he exhorted the Ephesian believers to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in our passage, he's telling us how you do that, how this can happen, how this is possible. And specifically, it's possible if we're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. If the saints are equipped for the work of the ministry. And specifically, he says that Jesus has come and given us gifts to empower us to that end. So that, that's where we are in this passage. I, uh, I talked a little bit last week about the messiness of, of our home because I have four young kids in my home. So they bring about mess with their homework and their toys and their games and their fits and general bad hygiene. And it's okay. I mean, that, that's, that's normal for a family with four young children in the house, but it wouldn't be normal if you fast forward 18 years and I've got, if I do my math right, a 26 year old, a 24 year old, a 22 year old and an 18 year old and nothing has changed. It, you know, if we're, if they're still living at home and we're still they're needing us to cook for them and clean for them and, and litigate, you know, their, mitigate their disputes. If that's what's going on in 15 years, something has gone bad wrong in the Davis home. Because our goal is that they would be equipped and they would be able to go out on their own, that they would be flourishing and fruitful members of society contributing in various ways. And as children of God, the same is true with us. God wants us to be equipped. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to flourish. And that happens when we're equipped. So what I wanna do, I wanna look at this passage and I wanna see three, hopefully very basic things. I wanna see who it is that equips us, how we are equipped, and why we must be equipped. So pretty simple. We have a who, a how, and a why. So who it is that equips us. We see this really clearly in verses seven through 10. Paul in no uncertain terms is saying it's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the one who equips us. Look at verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Jesus is giving gifts. These are gifts that are gonna be different for everybody. But he doesn't just give us the gift. He then gives us this grace associated with the gift. And this grace is what empowers these gifts to be able to be used for the glory of God through our lives. And there's a big transition that's going on if you see it here. And it's important to see because it's what shows us that all of us get gifts. All of us. They're going to look different, but we all get them. Because preceding this 
verse 7, you see this emphasis on the unity, one body, one faith, one spirit, uh, one Lord. And then in the beginning of our passage, there's this but. And then it goes from unity to diversity. But we have each been given these gifts. Now, I'll be honest, I, I remember years uh, where this passage just confused me. And, and maybe I was just being lazy. I'd just read over it and all this ascending and descending. I really wasn't sure what was going on. Somehow we ended up with gifts. I wasn't sure how the ascending contributed to the gifts until somebody one day pointed out to me that all Paul is doing is using Psalm 68 as a, as a way to build on what he's trying to teach here. So in Psalm 68, some of you remember, is a Psalm of David where the Israelites have just, just triumphed over the Jebusite city. And God, in the form of the ark, is ascending Mount Zion in a parade, and he's giving gifts to men. And so what Paul's doing is he's using that to elicit something in our mind. And, it, you know, it's, it's not going to elicit the same thing in our mind as it would the Israelites, because we don't go to war with Tampa and Miami, and we don't have any mountains to walk up. <laughs> But I think everybody there would have understood very clearly what is going on because this was a common practice. When you had a victorious king, he would return with his army to his city, which was generally on a hill, and he would do at least two things. He would parade his recaptured soldiers, that is his soldiers who were captured and he went and he freed them. They would be paraded up and then freed. And often they would have spoils of war that to some degree would be shared with the city in some way. And so Paul's wanting to elicit this imagery of Psalm 68 and a very common practice of the day to illustrate what Christ is doing. Jesus at his ascension is essentially doing the same thing. So you have Jesus who won the war at the resurrection and at his ascension, he is going to the throne of God and he's parading a host of captives that he can set free and he's giving gifts to men in the form of the Holy Spirit and it's his associated subsidiary gifts. But what's interesting to me is Paul doesn't stop there. Like he, this is a good illustration, but Paul, it seems like if it stops there, it's still just a little bit small, too small because what's going on in Christ's ascension, it's so much bigger than any, than any king on earth's ascension after a victory. So he adds verse nine, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So I really appreciate the way that the ESV translates this because it can be very confusing. Like why is Paul wanting to emphasize this descending? Well, he's wanting to put on display the degree to which the ascension happened here, the degree to which Jesus went to come down to us. And it's, I think you can, you know, there, there's this pitfall some we can fall into, you know, even just kind of thinking that there were only two members of the Trinity until three quarters of the way through the Bible, then Jesus came on the scene and then Jesus popped up somehow. But Jesus has always been, Jesus has always existed. And here is where Jesus is choosing to come down, to descend farther than any king has ever descended to come and save us. I mean, what Paul, I think, is wanting to say in this ascending and descending language is that 
A victory march to the top of Mount Everest would look like an anthill compared to what Jesus Christ is doing in this moment by ascending from lowly earth to the throne room of God in heaven. And C.S. Lewis has this great quote talking about the degree to which Jesus condescended to come to us, to redeem us. He says, the eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. You can hear his 1940s, I think, a woman's body. The times were different back then. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. So whatever it would mean for us to condescend to the nature of a slug or a crab, to redeem them into something, maybe say humanity, that pales in comparison to the degree that Jesus condescended, coming from heaven, becoming a baby and then a man, to be able to redeem us into what we were designed to be. And, you know, as a parenthetical here, it's not uncommon for people to read this and where it says descended to the lower regions and and interpret that Jesus was going below earth in some way. I don't think that's going on in this passage. There is a passage in 1 Peter that does seem to insinuate that, but I think it's important that we keep these passages separate because what Peter's doing, Peter's talking about the time between Jesus's death and his, his resurrection. Paul is talking about something that's happening between the resurrection and the ascension. So what lower regions here means is, as translated in the ESV, the earth. He came all the way down here to save us. So Jesus is the one doing the equipping because he's the one giving out the gifts, gifts to everyone in the form of the Holy Spirit. But Paul's wanting to be really specific here. This passage is not primarily just about the gifts of the Spirit, as we'll see. This passage, Paul wants to focus, laser focus on a very specific thing that happened when Jesus gave gifts to men. And this is how we're equipped. Verses 11 and 12. We're equipped by Jesus through his Holy Spirit, which is a very confusing world to get into if you, if, you, if you venture into left and right extremes of our faith. You have some people who would say, you know, there's no such thing as spiritual gifts. We just don't need to talk about those. We just need to read the Bible. And you have other you know, groups of people who would narrow in on just a few gifts and really make a lot of, say, tongues and prophecy and avoid all these other, just not address a lot of the other gifts in there. And then you have people who make everything that you do or like a spiritual gift, like I have spiritual gift of cats and spiritual gift of napping and things that have no real kingdom influence. So in this passage, we need to see that Paul is doing something very specific. He's focusing on four gifts, just four. And we have to remember there are five lists of gifts in the New Testament, five different lists. They're all very different from each other. If you add up all the gifts, you'll come up with it from these five lists. You'll get somewhere around 20 gifts. And most everyone would agree that even those 20 are not exhaustive. They're probably more. Paul is doing something very specific here by focusing on these four because what he's wanting to get at is the equipping of the saints. So he narrows in on which four. 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and what he calls the pastors and teachers. And I think he focuses on these four for a very specific reason, because they are all so closely tied to the word of God. I mean, that's what's going on. And I'm going to walk through these four things, these four types of gifts, and hopefully convince you of this. <laughs> all right, so we'll start with the apostle. The word, the word apostle, it simply means sent ones. That's, that's what it means in the text, which was really helpful to me when I was early on in Italy learning a, a new language. Because when you went to the post office, the word you had to use to send an envelope was apostare. Apostle, apostare. You can hear it. It's where we get our word for post office. It's sent. And in the Bible, we see this word, this word sent one, used in three different ways. So it's important to understand the way that Paul's wanting it to be used in this context. The first way we see this word being used is simply sent, as in every Christian is sent at some level. That, that's the minority use in the New Testament, but it exists. It's also not the way I think that Paul's wanting to use this word. The second way we see this word used is when people were sent out from the church. So apostles of the church sent to go and minister to a church or deliver a letter to a church or go preach a church or go plant a church. These were sent ones out from the church, apostles of the church. We, if you're here for August Missions Month, you can see we, we have a lot of sent ones from the church. Uh, that come out of Orlando Grace Church. Actually, when I was uh, really beginning, you know, my serious conversations with this church, one of the things that just blew me away is how many people have been sent out from this church around the world. For the, for the size church that this is, the global footprint is really astounding to me. So that's the second way the word is used. I don't think that's what Paul is wanting either to, to mean or convey when he, when he says this. I think he's wanting to communicate this third use of the word. And this is a formal office of an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the way he's been using this word in this letter up until this point. And in, in the very first verse, he refers to himself in this way. So we have no reason to think that he's switching meanings. He's talking about this office of apostle. So this office of apostle, this would include the 12, it would include Matthias, it would include at least two Jameses. Uh, this was an office appointed personally by Jesus. So these people were personally chosen by Jesus. These, person, these people personally saw the risen Jesus Christ, which is one reason we don't believe the office still exists right now. There are churches out there that would believe the, the office of apostle is still an office to be filled. But if you look at what the office of apostle was doing in the New Testament, it's foundation building. It's built, these, these apostles were building the foundation of the church. They, they were there in this in-between of Jesus's ascension and the canonization of the New Testament. So they were there to set up the foundation of what we now look at and have in our Bibles. So the office of apostle secured the word of God as we have it for us. So it makes sense that, that if we value that gift, that we would go to great lengths to preserve the word of God in our midst. When if we see that as a real gift to the church, we're going to work very hard to preserve 
what Jesus went so far to give us. So, I mean, this is why we preach expositionally. We expose people to the Bible. This is why we have equipping hour where it will, you know, you'll go much more in depth in equipping hour than your average sermon would go. Uh, this is why our community groups are word-based. Uh, this is why we have a high value of, of discipleship and small groups, which you heard a little bit about last week. But the apostles, they secured the word. So we work very hard now to preserve the word. All right. Secondly, Paul talks about the gift of prophets. And again, no small amount of disagreement in Christianity about what a prophet is and the role of prophecy today. When I was on uh, staff with Campus Crusade, there were some prophets out on campus at a table and they were prophesying. And I decided I want to go hear what they had to say about me. So I, I sat at the table and they said a few things. And I, I really remember the one that caught my attention is that I was going to be really rich one day. That prophecy is not looking really good right now. But I don't think they really understood the role of a prophet in the Bible. Because the role of the prophet in the Bible, it wasn't simply to predict the future. Although that did happen sometime. The role of a prophet was to speak for God, to stand in the counsel of God. And, and a term I learned in seminary that's always stayed with me is to be a covenant prosecutor, to come to the people and say, you're, you're straying in this way. You're, you're breaking the covenant in this way. Come home. That's the role of a prophet. Actually, it was so significant that if you prophesied something as a prophet and it didn't happen, do you know what happened to you? You were killed. It just doesn't seem like the prophets I encountered had that kind of respect for the responsibility that the role comes with. So if you think about the role of the apostle as securing the word of God, you can think about the role of prophet as having real wisdom in how we apply the word of God. And like apostle, we don't have formal offices of prophets in this church. I know some churches do. We don't see the Bible saying that this is a formal office to be filled in the church. But I do think there is such a thing as, as a subsidiary kind of gift of prophecy, a prophetic gifting. There are people in our midst who seem to just understand the word of God better than other people. There are people who have this ability to bring just the right verse at just the right time to just the right person. There are people who seem to be able to talk with somebody and, and bring about a higher level of conviction of their sin than the rest of us can and a higher level of comfort in the gospel than the rest of us can. I think there really is, there are gifts like this among us, but the emphasis is on applying God's word in a real, genuine, heart-level, life-changing kind of way. So it seems like this, this I think is what uh, Paul had in mind in prophet. I think that is how it plays out today. And I'll give you one example to be really clear of what I am and I'm not saying. <laughs> Probably about six years ago now, Angela uh, and I were really talking. We had three little kids. We were wondering whether a fourth was in the picture. And Angela was really praying. She was really struggling with it. She felt like there, like there might be a fourth, but we had our hands full with the three we had. And, and she prayed, God, I just, I need something audible from you. And she, I remember her saying, I, I don't even know what that means, but I, I just need more help than I'm getting. 
And so we were at the beach and Angela was walking with the kids from the beach back to our house, you know, on the boardwalk that goes over the dunes. And there was this woman there. And I think she made some comment about our kids being cute. And Angela said, thank you. And she said, do you plan on having any more? And so immediately you have my wife's attention. And Angela said, you know, deep down, I'd probably like another one. Maybe I even think God wants me to have another one, but I don't think so. I think it's just too much. I'm too tired. I have too much on my plate. And this woman looked at Angela and said, I don't want to weird you out, but I have been standing here for an hour because I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me to stay. I have no idea why, but I want to tell you when you talk, I hear a lot about you and what you can and can't do and very little about God. Because if he's calling you to do something, do you really believe that he'll provide for you? I don't think this woman was a prophet in the sense of the biblical office, but I think my wife was ministered to in a prophetic way, in a significant way in that moment. And so some of you have this gift and we want this to be fanned, but we can't lose... We can't lose the importance of what Paul's doing in tying these gifts of the Spirit to the Word. And I, I don't want to be mean, and I don't want to be too critical, but I've been around churches that do have the office of apostle and the office of prophet, and I don't think it's a coincidence that you have an inverse relationship with the Bible. Because the more the office of prophet and apostle is lifted up in the local church, the less the Word is exalted. And I don't think that's coincidence. The apostle and the prophet, the gifts were given to us to secure the word, to establish a foundation. And now we come to two other gifts that are designed to build on that foundation. The gift of an evangelist and then this thing called a shepherd and pastor. So let's look at these two. Evangelist. I don't know what you think of when you hear evangelists. If you grew up in the deep South, you can just imagine this guy coming in from out of town and screaming at you for three days. Or maybe on campus, you know, you have this guy who stands up in the middle of campus and yells at people for three days. There's something about three days. It always does last three days. I don't know why. That's, that's not what I think we should have in our mind when we think of an evangelist. There are people in our midst who are just better at evangelism than the rest of us. There are people who... You know, evangelism scares so many of us, but then there are people who just can't wait to go and talk about Jesus. And a lot of us are really awkward in our evangelistic expert, our evangelistic uh, experiences, but there's some people who can just seamlessly somehow bring Jesus into any conversation. You know, and some of us just, we don't feel like we see a lot of fruit when we talk about Jesus. And then there's other people who just constantly seem to have fruit. I have a a really good friend who I would never point anyone to him as a model for evangelism. He he breaks so many norms of of what good evangelism should look like, but unbelievable numbers of people seem to be brought into the kingdom through this guy. Two years ago, he was sharing the gospel with somebody, calling him the wrong name the entire time. And it didn't bother this guy at all because he was so enthralled with the message that was being brought to him and he became a Christian that day. I think these are the kinds of giftings that Paul's talking about that God gives the church to be able to build on the foundation that we've been given. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. 
It doesn't mean that the rest of us don't have to share our faith anymore because <laughs> we've got these experts among us. It just means we've got experts among us to help us get better. I mean, I don't have the gift, gift of hospitality, but it doesn't mean that I, I don't host anybody. I'm not hospitable in any way. It just means that some of us are better and that's okay. We want to we wanna identify those people. We want to raise them up and we want to fan those flames. Then finally, you have this gift called pastor teacher, teaching pastor, shepherd pastor. Uh, there has been, so if you think about the evangelist being set apart to communicate the truths of the word to people who don't believe, then you have the pastor who's primarily tasked with communicating the truths of scripture to people who do believe for the purpose of equipping the saints. This, that's, that is everyone, the way that Paul's using this word, to equip the saints and there's been a lot of argument over the years as to whether there are five gifts here that Paul is identifying or four. And, and I definitely lean on the four side. I think pastor and teacher are going together for two reasons. If you look at the construction of the Greek, it really seems to be just talking about four things. And most of your translations, you can see, agree with me because of where they put the comma. They didn't forget their Oxford comma. But then secondly, if we're reminded that that Paul's isolating these gifts to show the importance of the word in equipping the saints, then it seems more, more reasonable to bring pastor and teacher together rather than separating the two. What Paul doesn't do, I think it's interesting, you know, he, he doesn't say elder, bishop, he doesn't say overseer. Why? Because they're all the same thing. He uses these terms interchangeably over the course of the New Testament, elder, overseer, uh, shepherd, pastor. They refer to the same office. So there are people uh, who have been appointed, men in this church who have been appointed to be an elder. And, and I'm no different than the rest of the men in terms of importance, authority, value in the church. I'm one of seven right now. Uh, and I've simply been freed up to be able to elder full-time. I've been freed up financially that I can put the time that is needed in this church towards eldering. But the men who bear the responsibility of elder, it doesn't mean they're the only people who can teach or the only people who can shepherd. Honestly, I joke, there are men and women in this church that I think are better shepherds and teachers of the Bible than I am. It means that we bear the responsibility to make sure the saints are equipped for the work of the ministry. And this is something that we, we take very seriously because, I mean, as you can see, this is, this is one of our core values. We want to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So how are we doing this? What is our plan? So we see that Paul, he seems to be saying, by isolating these four of more than 20 gifts, that the word is the way the church is established by the apostles and prophets. The word is the way the church is grown through the evangelists, through the shepherds and teachers so that the saints can be equipped and they can go out and be fulfilling the great commission. That's what Paul is saying. So how is it that we at Orlando Grace Church are hoping to see this happen. I mean, this is where we get to the very practical parts of these series where we talk about where we are and where we're going as Orlando Grace Church. If you want a really uh, thorough 
you know, detailed explanation of everything we're doing under every core value, you can go to our website, website and our strategic values are, are on there, our core values, our strategic plan. But I do want to highlight a few things on there. And the first is that we agreed we need to be able to assess this church. What, what is going on in this church? Where, what is our level of interaction with the word? What is our level of knowledge of the word? What, how, what are we doing with that? And so we've done a couple things to be able to do that, but we're limited outside of the Sunday service in, in what data we can actually get. Because when we get this data, we can know and assess where we need to focus our equipping. So we're going to utilize the end of this service to do something. <laughs> we want to assess our missional footprint by doing a missional survey. This is going to involve, at the end of the service, everyone in this room, it doesn't matter if you're a member, a tender, first-time guest, you're going to pull out your phone, and we have about a five-minute survey that we would like you to fill out. A lot of you have um, you've already been aware of this. We've been telling you we're going to do this. It is totally anonymous. Uh, your name is nowhere on there. It's easy. It's just, it's multiple choice, but this will give us what we consider to be mission critical data about where we are as a church. And people say, why don't you just email it to us all? Well, A, it's already been emailed to everybody. It's, if, you're, if you're on the email list, it's in your box. But B, only 33% of you, as of recently, actually open those emails, which is pretty good for a church, but it's not good enough to get the data that we need, which is why we had a big meeting in the elders meeting. Do we really do this in the service? And we agreed it's attached to one of our core values. And we think the data is so valuable and we don't know how to get it any other way. At the end of this service, I'm going to walk you through a process of simply filling that out. So that's first. Second, we believe that we need to be in real relationships with each other to be able to to be able to value these gifts and be equipped in the word the way it seems like Paul wants us to. So that's why up until last week, we had this big push for community groups and Mike and others have worked very hard. And over the past week, we've been able to plug 50 new people into the community groups in this church. Third, it's hard to equip people that we don't know. <laughs> so the, the hope is that, that everyone in here is known by an elder, known. It doesn't mean that Every elder would know every person, but everyone in every member would be known by an elder. And so this gets difficult when over the past 12 months, we, our membership has grown by 25%. And we currently have 40 people in process for this next new members class. So the, the no brainer is if we're going to do this well, if we're going to equip well, we need more elders. So that's why we've been in the nomination process and we plan on keeping you apprised as we go forward there. Fourth we recognize that we need to improve the assimilation process here. So that's the process of first-time guest to plugged-in member because we deeply believe that people who are plugged in as a thriving member of church are going to be equipped more significantly than people who aren't. That, that was our, our, our deep value. So what we've done, we've tried to overhaul everything from the first moment at the door all the way into the membership process. And this includes some simple things like when someone fills out a, uh, a that tear-off card or if you check your kids into KidCheck for the first time, you are going to get a series of three video emails from me over the next 10 days kind of walking you through the process of what it looks like to be that, to start out as that first-time guest and to uh, end up as a plugged-in member. 
We've had to make significant changes to the Discover OGC class. We've added spiritual gifts surveys uh, to be able to understand how God has uniquely made people. In every class, there's somebody who says, I'm not going to do that, and that's okay. But most people do it, and it really helps us to understand where in the ministry of this church are they going to thrive. Because we're, if we serve in the way that we're gifted, then we're going to enjoy it more and be better at it. So we have a very fleshed out process at the end of the Discover OGC process where we go through every single new member, look at their preferences and how it seems like God's made them, uh, and we plug everyone into a, a, a place of service in this church and ideally a community group. And then fifth, we recognize that it is not only the elders who equip people. It's everyone in this church has the call to invest in others, to equip others. We have the responsibility to make sure that it's happening. But everyone in this room contributes something. Everyone in this room is made with different gifts. Our gifts are more like a fingerprint than, than, than a number. We really resemble more of a snowflake in the way that we're designed. Everyone's different. Everyone has something different to contribute. We believe this deeply. So we want to continue to know our people, continue to teach the word, and continue to urge others to be going out and doing the same thing. Because that's what Paul is saying. Equip the saints, why? For the work of the ministry. And that gets us to the why. <laughs> because the end has to be crystal clear. Because we're not equipping everybody just so that we can build up a big church or have a, a, you know, a lot of money. That's not why we're here. We're here for a very specific reason that we see in verses 13 through 16. We can see that in the final three verses, the goal is, so, is that we would be equipped for spiritual maturity. That we would, in some way, resemble the fullness of Jesus Christ in our maturity. That we would be able to go out and equip others. And that we would be built up by Christ. We would be built up in love so that his kingdom can grow. That's the end goal of this equipping is so that Jesus' love would be shown and explained and taught and embraced and that his kingdom would grow. The last thing we want to be is tossed about by waves and carried about by the wind of different doctrine and craftiness and human cunning. We want to be anchored. We want to be the rock that those waves break against. And that, that phrase that Paul uses, you know, tossed to and fro by waves. I don't know how many of you have like done a lot of offshore fishing, but you get into some heavy waves and that's a scary thing. I, I remember very clearly my first offshore uh, fishing trip. I was four years old. I was, that's how bad I was scarred. I remember it like it was yesterday. My dad did a lot of fishing, still does, and he took me on his boat. And don't, before you think anything bad about my dad, we didn't have all these fancy weather apps back then. You just had a little bit of data and then made your best guess and went out. And we went out on one of the worst days we've ever seen in our life. It was so rough that the Coast Guard had to come back to the, to the inlet and they closed it. They wouldn't let anybody back in. So we're just out at sea waiting to get back in with waves so big. I can remember vividly, you go up them and it felt like you were vertical. And it wasn't just a feeling because I'd look at the next boat going up them and I could see every square inch of their deck. I was horribly seasick. And the scary thing is if you don't know how to handle those waves, you capsize and then you're truly just tossed about 
at the mercy of the waves. It's a terrifying thing to be tossed about by the mercy of the waves. But Paul's saying it's even more terrifying to be tossed about by the waves and winds of various doctrines and ideas and cunning and maybe taken advantage of. Paul's desire is that we would be anchored. And the way that we're anchored is by being equipped in the word. That's what he's doing here. Because when people are equipped, when people are anchored, love grows and, and kingdom grows. And probably the best picture I have of this happening in a church. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this church. It's called Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, pastored by a guy named Mark Dever. And he went to this church, I think, in 1993. It was an old Baptist church on Capitol Hill. And these are his words, not mine, filled with 70 blue hairs. <laughs> and he's not, nothing against people who are older. That's totally... It's just not really a great long-term uh, plan for a church if everybody's 80 and up. Um, but he went to that church. He loved that church. He taught that church. He shared his faith. He discipled people year after year after year in this church. And you fast forward to 2002. So nine years. He was just equipping people, equipping people. Nine years. And the demographic had changed, but it was still not a large church. A smaller smaller than we are on Sunday, but about 200 people who would come together on Sunday. But they were 200 equipped people. And then like all of a sudden you hit this critical mass where you had 200 people who knew how to handle the word, who were sharing their faith, whether it was their gift or not, who were training people up and almost overnight they went from 200 to a thousand. Because it, it's not on Mark Dever's preaching to draw on the masses. It, he had it faithfully for nine years equipped the saints to do the work of the ministry. And that's the hope. That's the hope that we're all engaged in this ministry. And now that church, I mean, they'll take 150 people at a time and plant a church and those seats fill right back up and they can take another 150 and go to some other place and plant another church. And it's just become a church planting factory because the people have been equipped to do the ministry that we're called to do. It doesn't matter how great we make Sunday morning. I mean, we want Sunday morning to be good, but as a, as a plan to have influence, Sunday morning is not the time that we want to attract the masses. <laughs> and, and not only do we not want to, it just wouldn't work anymore. I mean, you realize our city is now only 6% evangelical. 6%. So that puts us on par with New York City and Seattle. So I don't care what we do in here. If we have concerts and monkeys and whatever, give free stuff out. Your average person who doesn't believe in Jesus doesn't care and is not going to come in and see how great our Sunday service is. It would be ridiculous for us to think that this is the vehicle by which we are going to mainly reach the city. But if we see that the vehicle is all of us, Monday through Saturday, I bet there are few of us in this room who could even imagine what all God would do through that. That's what God wants. We can't be okay just looking at the 6%, trying to reshuffle the 6%. And we can't be okay with that because we were the 94%. We were the 94%. And Jesus came down here for us. He came down here lower than slugs or crabs would be to us. He came down here and he gave us apostles. He gave us prophets. He gave us evangelists. He gave us shepherds and teachers 
so that we could know that Jesus loves us, that he's come down to tell us there's more for your life, but he's the only way. And then to tell us that not only are we being called into a relationship with him, called in, out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, we're then called to join him and labor with him. It really is, it's an amazing privilege that God would call us into this kind of thing. But it is only going to happen if we are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So you're going to hear about that for years, I can promise you. But our hope is to always be showing you what we're trying to do to equip the saints more. And at every family night meeting, we're going to show you how we're doing. Are we accomplishing the tasks that we're prayerfully seeking out? Which brings me to my very last thought. Please pray. I said this last week. My hope is that every at least every member of this church, I'd love for everyone in this church to get the strategic plan, have the core values and create some way that you would pray through these core values that we as a church would be accomplishing these things. And so on that note, I wanna pray specifically for our efforts to equip our people. God, we thank you so much that you have given us your word, that you have not left us. You pursue us, you love us. We are so thankful to be called into your kingdom and into your work. And, and we, want, we want to be good. We want to be fruitful. We don't want to be on the sideline. We want to play the sport. We want to be in the game. And we pray that we would take this seriously. Our call to be equipped and to equip others and wherever we are in this room, maybe there's some of us who we're fully equipped, but we're not equipping other people, that you would give us avenues to be able to equip other people. Some of us that want to be equipped and aren't and don't know how to be. God, I pray that, that we would be a place where we would be able to equip that person. And maybe that person would be able to see somebody else and say, would you, would you help me in this? I, I want to walk with you. I want to grow. We pray that this would be a church marked by people being equipped. We thank you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.